There are, by some estimates, more than one million distinct words in the English language. The average English-speaking adult, however, will only understand about 40,000 of them, and they will only use about 20,000 of them routinely. Words are building blocks. They're tools. We can use them to inspire, or we can use them to attack. We can make each other laugh, or we can make each other cry. Our same shared common language was used by Martin Luther King to liberate people and was used by the notorious Birmingham Police Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor to enforce segregation and to inspire violence. In her new collection of poetry called White Bull, Elizabeth Huey has tried to make sense of and reclaim the words of Bull Connor. For a decade, she sifted through his speeches, his private letters, even his receipts to create a database of language for which she used to build something different turning the words of hatred into her language of poetry. Today on The Reckon Interview, I chat with Elizabeth about what motivated her to take on a project like this, how her upbringing in the suburbs of Birmingham affected the way she sees the world, what it was like to sit in the headspace of one of the most known American villains of the 20th century. We also talk about her decision to move back to Birmingham after years of living in the Northeast to found a literary nonprofit, the Desert Island Supply Company, a.k.a. Disco. And then we talk about what she hopes people gain from a project like this. And of course, we have her read a few of her poems. So let's go ahead and get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Elizabeth Huey, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you. Glad to be here. You have a new book out, White Bull. It is a collection of poetry, and it is an interesting premise. You have written all of these poems using just the words of Bull Connor. Tell me about that thought process and why you decided that you needed to to reclaim his words. Yes. Well, this project started nearly a decade ago. So around 2012, 2013, I had recently moved back to Birmingham after living out of the state for years, swearing I would never move back. I came back with my family, my husband and one, now two sons, and you know, a couple of things happened around the same time back then. One is that we were we moved into the city. We grew up in the suburbs. We moved into actual Birmingham City, and we started a nonprofit where we were going into the schools teaching poetry in Birmingham public schools. I sort of recognized the divide between the environment and where I grew up in the suburb, which is a white flight suburb, and the schools and resources available to those schools in the city. I was really kind of starting to feel conflicted about Birmingham itself and realizing that the civil rights era was not over. It was still very much beginning, and there was a lot to work to do in Birmingham itself. And so at the same time, um, I started to realize that the neighborhood where I was living, where I live now, this house, that's where Bull Connor lived. He went to church across the street from Disco, the building where Disco is. It's just a neighborhood in Woodlawn right down the road from here. So he went to church across the street from where I work. And I just started to feel his presence or his you know, resonance in our city. Of course, also kind of reflected in some of the leaders in our state and in the country. And at the same time, the Birmingham Public Library had just uh, released Bull Connor's files for while he was in office. He was the commissioner of public safety during the 60s, during the civil rights era. Most people know probably that he was the man behind the dogs and the fire hoses, those kind of iconic pictures that you see from that era of that time. So I had access to all of his words that he used uh, during that time. And, you know, I read a biography of him. I read Carry Me Home, which is Diane Waters kind of, you know, Bible of the civil rights era in Birmingham or in the South. And so that's where the book began. 
That's how it started. And I honestly didn't know if it would work. Sometimes I wonder if it did work. (laughs) You know, I still wonder if that was the right thing to do to bring attention to this man in this way. I really kind of lived with his words for the past, you know, 10 years. And we know what's happened during those past 10 years. So it's not like they have gotten any less meaningful from them now. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you pointed out most people probably associate Bull Connor with images. They associate him with the images of white police officers turning dogs loose on black children who are protesting in the streets of Birmingham. They associate him with the images of white police officers hosing black children protesting in the streets of Birmingham. People don't really think of him as an orator. You think of George Wallace's speeches. And I know that Bull Connor's background before he was police commissioner was actually in in radio and play-by-play calling for both the white baseball teams and the Negro League baseball teams in Birmingham. What was it about his speeches, his correspondence that drew you as a source of, I don't know if inspiration is the right word, but it's a source of exploration. Well, I think it's because they were accessible because they were there to be used, to be found. I will say I was also at that time kind of inspired by some other projects that, you know, drawn to Harriet Mullen, who's a poet. She actually is born in Florence, lived in Texas or grew up in Texas, but she had written a book called Recyclopedia, which played with Gertrude Stein's Tender Buttons. And she was at that that time kind of trying to negotiate between her admiration for Stein and her, you know, playful syntax and her kind of ruminations on femininity and this domestic space that women live in. She was trying to grapple with that and the racist imagery that was in Stein's work. That was a project that I was interested in. And also artists like Kara Walker, who was a silhouette artist who was kind of retelling the narrative of Antebellum South using these um, large silhouettes, um, kind of classic silhouettes to tell that story through enslaved people's eyes and imagery. So I think I was looking for material. You know, I think I was looking for what would mine be? What would my material, what is my material going to be? If I want to, you know, add to that conversation, what would I use? And Bull Connor was right here with me, you know, unfortunately, I mean, like he's just still here. So I just was drawn to those words. There's a poem early on. This was not one we had discussed you reading, but it does describe, you know, you living on his street and in some ways seeming haunted, you know, that he you are being stalked by Bull Connor around Birmingham. It is called House of Bull. And I wondered if you might read that one for us real quick. House of Bull. A man sits alone in the house next door to a man alone in a house next door to mine. One of these houses is yours. We walk over your footsteps. We breathe in the words that you blew out. It has taken 50 years for the sounds of the fireworks to wake us, and we never saw the show. We were children put to bed early. The teacher said all men go to the same place to dream but that is not where we go to see you. Every window has your face in it. We can't say which house it is. So tell me about this poem. You know, as I'm listening to it, I'm imagining that you were writing this around the anniversary of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. You said that you grew up in a white flight suburb. How much of this history did you know as a child 
What did you know about Bull Connor as a child? How much of it did you learn in the process of, of kind of putting this book together? Yeah, you know, I, uh, very little, we, you know, we watched Eyes on the Prize in um, philosophy class and read some literature in our literature classes about, you know, that era, but I, I knew very little. And when I left the South and um, people would say, oh, you know, Birmingham, you know, that's where they're racist there, you know, well, they're racist everywhere. But my response was, yeah, that was, that must've been bad back then. You know, I didn't really, you know, I thought it was over and done. And um, that was just my ignorance. You know, I just didn't know coming back here is when I really learned almost everything. (laughs) Well, and you mentioned Diane McWhorter's book being a source of inspiration from this. And I believe you also may have pulled some of his quotes from from that for this book. I did not realize how intimately connected people where we grew up were to the civil rights movement on the wrong side, you know, that that they were like you think of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombers and things like that as being, you know, people who were working in the steel mills and the mines and things like that. But you know, a lot of that, as I learned as an adult, was being funded by the people who lived in the communities that we lived in, the, the more well-off communities. That book especially, and also as I was going through Bull Connor's files, the names that were recognizable, I mean, there were so many names that either I went to school with, and they may not, you know, these are just names, these are ancestors that, you know, what, you know, a high schooler in the 80s or, you know, what the attachment they have to their family and what they did. I mean, we don't know, but um, just the number of names that would come up or even people I wrote thank you notes to, I think that comes up in the book, you know, like names that, you know, that you see on signs in town, like the steel, yeah, like the steel factories and things like that. You're right. Like the proximity of the violence, <laughs> you know, to the, to, we were, to the people who were a part of that in some way. One thing also that while we're talking about that book, Diane McWhorter's book, and this is just that I realized too, that, well, number one, I would, the amount of infighting that happens with any movement, you know, that it was not just a, like, we're going to do this. And we're going to, there were debates about every March, about every critical decision that the um, was being made for the civil rights movement, but also that being able to watch people change their mind or change their view. There is a poem in the book about the girls in the lake, which is based on a lake, Smire Lake, where I used to swim with a friend. And that name, Smire, Sid Smire, I never knew who that was, never thought to even ask. He played a big role in that era and was segregationist. And then, and I may be getting this wrong, but he was a segregationist and then changed um, for business reasons, you know, because it was, you know, and a lot of people who changed their mind about segregation or integration became pro-integration because it did look bad for business and it was bad, looked bad for Birmingham and it was going to affect their wallet, you know, in the end or bank account in the end. So just being able in that book to see individuals, how a movement changes through individuals changing. Well, and if I remember correctly, and it's it's been, I guess, a decade since I picked up that book, but some of those wealthy businessmen in Mountain Brook were funding Klansmen initially as an anti-labor tactic. They wanted to turn lower-income white people against lower-income Black people in order to divide the labor movement Um and I think that it was some Mountain Brook businessmen who recruited Bull Connor to first run for 
police commissioner. I don't remember if it was Smyre or somebody else. But then, as you said, later, uh, being labeled Bombingham became bad for business. And a lot of these same people who, you know, kind of grabbed the tiger by the tail at the beginning of the movement uh, and led to the direct violence we saw later tried to distance themselves from it. And yeah, it's an interesting legacy to, to watch people wrestle with. Your opening poem, A Call to Arms, seems to be engaging with that idea. Can you read that one for us? A Call to Arms. A man will keep trying to beat the bad energy out of his father's statue until the man and the statue appear to be one mark on a timeline. Applause comes from inside the fire that takes down the stars and removes the difference between one thing and another, between shotguns and hands. Now we have just one word for everything, and we aren't even saying it. We are being said, though we can't quite hear ourselves being said. Okay, tell me what's going through your mind with this poem. I, you know, I'm, I was very drawn to the image of a man trying to beat the bad energy out of his statue, because that seems to be a conversation that we've been having all across the South, all across the country of, you know, us tearing down the statues that our ancestors may have erected. You know, you're, you're talking about the word that is being said. I, I'm just curious about what that word is and, and what you were thinking as you were writing this poem. <laughs> I don't know what that word is. That word changes to me. This is one of those poems that was really kind of an act of discovery as it was, as I was writing it, it feels like it was trying to be written or trying to be said, but, um, and maybe that word is a word we don't have yet. I want to ask a couple questions about process. Almost every word that is in this collection of poetry came from the writings of Bull Connor. How did you compile them? Did you pour them all into a database? And did you feel limited by that word selection? I did. I, at first, I felt very limited. And again, that was when I was like, I'm just not sure if this is going to work. The words felt very municipal. You know, they weren't very beautiful. I just didn't know if there was enough there. The bulk of the files, you know, I turned mostly to these. I went to the archives at the Birmingham Public Library a good bit. And then also, you know, but mostly used the, the digital version. Those files are not just his letters. They are, you know, magazine clippings. There are receipts for buying office furniture. There are many letters, um, which I use, but were not related at all to civil rights segregation. I mean, you know, it might be a report of a police officer getting bitten by his own dog, or it's one was uh, one letter was the Crimson Tides getting, uh, I guess their players were getting ticketed at the airport and they wanted, then he absolved them of their parking tickets. And, uh, you know, so, and there were plenty of letters that he was copied on that weren't written by him. They were not signed by him. And so I didn't use those. So that process in itself was slow and meditative and it was interesting and kind of, it was a place that it was almost like going to a place, you know, like sitting at your desk and then going into this file and being back in that era, you know, where you've got the 
county fair coming and a list of the flowers that won or something like, you know, like that part, I guess, kept me engaged as I was pulling these words or finding these words. And then I just started to create a bank. I did it in a Google document. The words grew and grew. I was writing poems during that process. The longer I was writing, the longer the book took, the more words I had to use. And there was a point in my journal, I wrote, like, I now kind of feel rich with words. Like there was a point where I was like, oh, I have meteorite now. You know, I have kissing, I have balloons, which I never got to use, you know, like I had, I had a wealth of words. So I went from having very little and feeling like I couldn't make anything out of it to kind of feeling like, oh, this is now I've got something to work with. And I also, you can tell in the book that I find words within words. So peach within impeachment. And so that really opened up what I could use. By the end of it, you know, I would have kept going. You know, I was submitting this book for a couple of years before it was accepted. I would have kept writing in this way. I thought about continuing to write like it forever, <laughs> then decided that, you know, it's, you know it's, it's time to put it down. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, what you learned about yourself and how you saw yourself change and how you saw, you know, Birmingham and the South change around you in this 10-year process that you were working on this book. I mean, you, you know, you referenced statues. We've seen some statues come down in Birmingham. We've seen, you know, massive changes in Birmingham in ways that we hadn't really seen in a few decades. And so tell me about what that process has been like for you. Yeah. Well, Birmingham itself, I mean, I love being here now. I absolutely love it. I love our mayor, Mayor Woodfin. He's very progressive. He is, I personally, he can do no wrong for me. I just really believe in him. He's really great during the pandemic, made some hard decisions about the city to keep it safe. He's brought a lot of new business here. You know, we have a new stadium for UAB and there's just a lot of good, good things happening in the city. The state itself, (laughs) not so good. This is not a good week for Alabama either with the gerrymandering. And it's a hard place to be. It's a hard place to be a blue dot or, you know, to be liberal or, you know, to be committed to seeing out the, you know, the plan for the civil rights movement to bring justice and equality and equity. It's a hard place to do it, but it's also the right place to be because I feel like there's a lot of work to do. I wrote through from Obama through Trump to Biden, you know, like (laughs) a lot of school shootings, a lot of police shootings, you know, like I just, it's been a dramatic 10 years in a lot of ways. (laughs) And that's (laughs) In that opening poem that you just read for us, you know, you talk about a man going after his father's statue and trying to beat that. What did you learn about your parents and your own upbringing in, in this process? My parents are pretty great, I have to say. My mom, my mom's a Democrat, and my dad, he is a Republican, but he is, does not like Trump. And I don't want to speak for him because it's easier to speak for my mom because we're very similar in the way we see things right now. But, you know, I think there is, my family is in this book. It's always been very easy for us to sit at the dinner table together. I don't have, you know, we don't have hard political discussions and we have political discussions, but if anything, my family has been a really great place to have a safe dialogue about a lot of things that we're processing. One thing I have learned from my dad, who I just admire so much, the book is dedicated to him. I have just seen his ability to change. He is always one to really think things over deeply, to think fairly. You know, he He'll admit, you know, I used to think this, but now I think this, you know, like I've seen this happen and now I think this, and I think that's just so healthy. So it's been a safe place again for me to have these conversations about what's right and what's not right in our city and in our country. I can't imagine living with Bull Connor as 
intimately as you've had to over the last decade without that taking you to some dark places on occasion. What was it like reading through his files and reading through his biography? What did you learn about him and what did you learn about yourself in that process? Yeah, there were definitely days where I would just be like, I don't want to go back in here. And a lot of it may have been a reflection of like, something's happening in the schools. It's already happening here in the present. I don't want to go back to the past. So there were definitely those days. I am not a Bull Connor scholar at all. Like I did a lot of research in the very beginning about him, but then I kind of let him go, you know? And so when I would go into his files, I mean, you know, clearly I would see his, see him and um, hear his voice or recognize his typewriter. I could recognize his typewriter and it was him. But um, I think I was most surprised by the people who supported him and the letters he would receive, you know, supporting him and say, thank you for keeping the parks closed that, you know, like things like that, like in his support, that was really disturbing that to me. Um, and I think that's also why, you know, this book is not to glorify Bull Connor and maybe not even to draw that much attention to him, but to kind of highlight the fact that there he's just one person and he was supported by so many. And now there are, you know, white supremacists here now who are taking on his cause and using his words or using his image for their own power. And that are, you know, also that there are those of us who are forward thinking, trying to do the right thing, white people trying to do the right thing who are silent or who are, who don't act that in itself is an act of complicity and a problem. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, you take these words of his that were used to glorify violence and to keep people divided and, and you are reclaiming them and, and kind of repositioning them in ways that tear down some of those things. But it was not, I mean, we should just state for everyone, it was not your intention to redeem or to reclaim Bull Connor. Because, you know, we do have a society at this point where it seems like we try to sand off the rough edges of a lot of terrible people from, from history. And, and that is not what you are trying to do with Bull Connor here. There's another poem that you wrote in here that really stood out to me. And I think it's because of where we both grew up called White Inks. I wondered if you might read that one. White Inks. One. How could we know there was any other way to wake up than by the unlocking of front doors across a neighborhood? Fathers leaving with combed hair like ideas out of a painted mouth. But what was being said? Kickstand, lunchbox, carpool, backboard. The summer heat came up over the mountain, a trained heat pinned in clay courts. We wore short shorts over swimsuits, over bodies that did not feel right in this day. Something felt off, left open. Afternoons, we roamed the dead air of ranch houses in the kind of silence that stretches between voices on the television when the actor is waiting to speak her next line. But what did she really have to say? It's not that something was left open, but that something could not be let out. We could not marry out of our own bodies, and who should want to? The gardens, the greenest lawns, soft sage under our feet, yellow iris, red bud, foxglove, our mothers made of heavy white blooms. We tried our father's drinks, fishing for green olives. We could not feel our fingertips. Two. If there had been a war, there were no ruins. 
A red mountain charged between our neighborhood and the city like a bull's shoulders. Downtown was all yellow notepad and briefcase, office buildings the color of bodies bled out. The park ponds were dry, unspecial city, only pretty at night and from a distance. But we were unspecial too, repeatable and expected to repeat. By high school, we were free to drive around. We picked up Michael and the other Michael and the new Liz. We parked on the top of the mountain and looked out over the city, a black pool containing another population of stars. We felt like we were characters in a movie, but we knew nobody was watching us. We felt our unimportance like an organ in our bodies. We looked down upon the city that we said we were from, where none of us really lived. We could not go there at night. We could not drive down any numbered streets. All the little lights, we did not know who they lit up. I feel like this is a poem that, you know, a lot of white suburbanites in any city across the country couldn't relate to where you claim a city that you don't actually live in. And as we were discussing at the beginning of this episode, that you really don't know all that much about. You know, I've been thinking a lot over the past few weeks about the types of local history that we were denied as students growing up in the suburbs and recognizing Birmingham as a collection of buildings and not necessarily knowing the, the story about it. You moved away at one point, and then moved back to Birmingham. How has your relationship changed from going from the suburbs to going away and wanting to escape and, and coming back? Yeah, I will say when you're talking about the history, not knowing the history, it's funny, like Shuttlesworth Airport. I did not know who Fred Shuttlesworth was. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I'm back to Birmingham, did not know. And, you know, that's just a shame. It's funny because, like I said, I swore I would never move back here. Alabama was growing up in a suburb in, you know, the 70s and 80s was just boring. I mean, that's what I remember most. I mean, the poem says the dead air of ranch houses. I just remember that just sitting in a, in a, in a house, like what to do. I went to San Francisco. I went to college in Virginia and then went to San Francisco and then, um, and then Massachusetts for grad school. And, um, all of those places I denied that I was homesick, you know, like I denied that I just really had Alabama in my blood. We sucked at the snow in Massachusetts. Our, we froze our car to the ground, like for a whole season because we didn't know how to shovel. Like, you know, like we just were, I felt lost and out of place everywhere else I was. I just kind of denied that that was where I was supposed to be. I've lived in the city. I, I could not move back to our suburb where we grew up. I couldn't move back to Mountain Brook. It was just too repeatable. Also it was in the poem is, you know, repeatable and expected to repeat. And many people are drawn. Why would you not be drawn to have what you had? Because it was so good. It was so easy and safe and good in that place. I mean, there was suffering. There was definitely trauma. Things happened, but like it was a, as safe as you can be. But I couldn't move back there. So we moved into the city. You know, I mean, that was our choice is just to kind of pick somewhere where you're driving on, driving down different roads that you don't, you didn't drive down your whole childhood and to be a part of the city, you know, to vote for the mayor and to participate in its growth and recovery. You know, all that to say, like, after moving so far away and saying I wanted to live away, like I live two miles from the Mountain Brook line at most, you know, I live three or four miles from my parents' house, like where I grew up, like I just cannot get that far away, <laughs> you know? 
And you work in the schools with your nonprofit, the Desert Island Supply Company. Was that something that you had in mind when you were moving back to the city to set up? Or is that something that you, you felt called to do once you got here? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, pretty soon after we got here, we were aware of A26 National or A26 Valencia was the first one in San Francisco, a writing program, which we kind of modeled disco after uh, where you have a space that's themed and, um, you know, you offer workshops and ours, we do a lot of readings and art and music and any kind of event that's creative in some way at the space, but you have that. And then you also have programs where you go into the schools um, and teach creative writing and and essay writing if needed. It was kind of on our radar. And then when we moved back in another thing that was so great about moving back when we did is that, you know, there was this building just sitting there empty and in Woodlawn, which is a neighborhood right near to us. And we were able to build out this space and live in it or use it for free for, for years because, you know, the, landlord just wanted it to be something, you know, um, and there are a lot of places like that. A lot, you know, a lot of the development that happens in Birmingham that or it was happening at that time was for that reason, you know, just to have some life back in these spaces. Coming up after the break, more stories and more poetry from Elizabeth Huey. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you've wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. There's a stereotype about kids and teenagers today that, you know, that they spend most of their time living on TikTok and social media and things like that. You know, what have you learned in teaching children poetry and essay writing and creative writing? Well, I mean, fourth graders are the best poets and they're the best readers of poets. I mean, really children, young students in general, like they just don't have the same limits of understanding that adults do. You know, I mean, they're just, they're much more open to what they don't understand or things that don't make sense, um, which poetry often doesn't make sense. I mean, that, that first poem in the book, I know, you know, it doesn't, it's not an easy poem, you know, to just explain. Um, you just experience it. In that way, you know, kids are just naturally open and accessible for, for poetry. I mean, I love teaching poetry because it's immediate. You just go in, a kid can write a poem in five minutes and it can be brilliant. I also love just being present for that happening, for that magic that happens. I'm always very thankful when a teacher or a principal allows us to come in because there are so many limits on their time and so much pressure, especially in this district, which, you know, a lot of schools are way behind, you know, there's just no time for poetry or art. Um, And so I'm always thankful when a teacher sees the value and knows that like, actually there is a connection to reading and writing poetry and whatever it is that they've got to check off their list for that day in order to meet the certain standard that they're going to be tested on. Um, So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's my favorite thing to do is, you know, is to spend time with Birmingham city students and also to, you know, we publish books every year of our, our kids work and to get that into the world. You know, I think that giving students a voice and um, make, letting them know that their voice is important and that they're going to have to not just write poetry, but they're going to have to advocate for themselves and speak for themselves. You know, being part of that process is just really rewarding. As we start to wrap up, there was one more poem that we were going to have you read. Now kiss the word lips on this paper. We'll have you read that one. All right. Now kiss the word lips on this paper. 
I eat a piece of paper with the word honey written on it and give my son the word toast and he eats it whole. I cover the windows with the words white sky, red brick, and 7 a.m., though it still feels like night. So I write to the weak sunlight, let us feel worthy of your love. We do not feel worthy, bound in our clothes made of paper with clean written all over them. We go out into the streets with our sticky notes made of fire and stick them on everything. Nothing burns. I take a note to my son's teacher that says, help. And she gives it right back with her red ink covering mine. Help. On my forehead, I write, what? I write on the school walls. I hate you words. You are not worthy of my love anymore. And the words are quiet. So I say them out loud. I yell all the words I can yell. Walnut, suitcase, pistol, wastebasket. I keep spitting words, trying to rid them from my mouth. This one feels very personal. You know, the other two or the other three that you've written, you were kind of engaging with history. And this seems more like engaging with kind of your everyday life and using the words from, from Connor to do so. When I asked you which poem you like to read the most, you, you were drawn to this one. So tell me what it is about this poem that, that resonates with you so much. I think partly, um, well, yes, it is personal. You know, had a lot of anxiety over schools with our kids. Like it, it's been really hard. We finding the right school for our kids and having some trouble with them being in the wrong school um, or at the wrong time. Um, so that was frustrating. Also, I think there's, I love that I say, I hate you words. <laughs> um, I don't hate words, but you know, there's just a point that you get to where words don't work anymore. Or, you know, a teacher writing help on top of your, you know, you're asking for help and she's saying help back. It's like, okay, well, we're just stuck in this volley. We both need help and we can't help each other. You know, like, (laughs) so I think that's, you know, that's, that's why I like it. You know, if you were to just tell somebody, well, I wrote a book of poetry using the words of Bull Connor, they might kind of look at you askance. Uh, And so tell me what you hope that readers will get from this book and what you hope kind of the legacy of this book will be. Well, I hope it's seen as part of a much bigger conversation. I hope that it's just seen as one one perspective in a in a very layered conversation. Um, I hope that you know readers are turning to black authors and looking for underrepresented voices. So I hope that this, like I said, this is you know just one voice in a conversation where that's probably not a white centered conversation, if that's even fair to say, considering it's a white book with white man's words. But that, and I hope that there is some value in reckoning, you know, and in grappling with your participation in a system that is broken and is undervaluing and limiting people of color and our neighbors, while at the same time giving access and privilege to those of us who are white. So I hope that that stirs people and um, makes them want to be a part of the solution. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us and read with us today. Yeah, that was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Elizabeth Huey for joining us today. You can buy her poetry collection, White Bull, at your favorite local bookstore or anywhere online. If you're enjoying our show, please go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and make sure you share the show with your friends and family. 
The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, and it's edited by Kanika Codrington and the fine folks over at Edit Audio. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.